Hello and welcome to In All of Us Command. I'm Kate. I'm Aaron. And we will be learning about national anthems. Each week we choose a new country at random, we learn a little bit about the country, and then we listen to their anthem. After listening, we rate the anthem based on several criteria and see how they all stack up in our humble opinion. Now, we don't want you to think that because of the title, we're huge fans of O Canada. Uh, we plan to dunk on it pretty much constantly throughout the show, and we don't expect it to finish highly in the rankings at all. So today... We've got our second two-parter. Yes, we're going to be talking about Spain. And um, I'm going to give you, like, heads up, full disclosure at the beginning. Um, we're going to be skipping a lot of stuff. I was doing my research for this, and there are parts of it where I'm just, like, scrolling through, like, kings and successions stuff well, I mean, and small wars. And it's like, So oh much of the history of the nations we've looked at is told more or less from the perspective of the colonizer. Yes, and that is going to... Yeah. <laughs> the the fact that we're finally looking at one of these major colonial powers is means that we're finally looking at something from their perspective. And the history, I imagine, is a lot more detailed and thorough as a result of that. There's so much going on. And just, like, more people writing stuff down also. Well, and the more power you hold, the more you can do that's going to yeah. end up in the history books. Like, Absolutely. if you're a nation that's been impoverished for all of history there's there's only so much your people can pull off that goes in the history books unfortunately yeah and, and spain is not one of those nations and i got to the section where they're colonizing everything and i really almost like didn't know how to address it yeah so and a lot of that we're gonna just address in the other nations like we know yes. what spain did in in argentina totally. and guatemala and so on so i'm giving myself that and then also i feel like we will learn from this like big colonizer episode and um you know we can apply our learning to further exactly big colonizer episodes so hopefully by the time we get to like england for example we know what we're doing watch me draw england next time and i'll be like fuck i'm gonna laugh really hard <laughs> at you if you do england is gonna be like five parts oh yeah that one's gonna be monstrous we'll probably split it probably. whenever it comes up yeah like between us yeah i think so i think we'll have to That's we'll talk about this off the yeah off okay the podcast. i'm just i'm interested now i want to know how we're gonna do it okay um so let's get into this a little bit so I'm going to talk a little bit about the geography, even though I feel like most people probably know where Spain is. Um, it is quite distinct. It is very as, distinct. As far as country borders go, it's very easy to spot on a map. Yeah, and we have several listeners from Spain, or at least one listener who's we do, yeah. tuned in for every episode. So Shout hi out there. to our Spain listener. We appreciate you. Please tweet <laughs> us or email us. We would just love to hear from you. We'll and read your any, email. Especially any thoughts you have on this episode. I would love to hear that. Also, we'll read your email on the air and everything if you want us to. Um, okay, so uh, Spain is located on a piece of land called the Iberian Peninsula, which I think you can probably imagine is like that bit that sticks out. Yeah, sort of between France. France and northwestern Africa. Yes, there are lots of it's lots of water and not a lot of land borders. Um, the land borders that do exist are with Portugal, uh, France, and Gibraltar. Gibraltar is a weird one. I looked this up. Like, I was going to say, is that an independent? Well, okay. <laughs> I looked this up quickly, um, not wanting to, and this is like two seconds into me beginning my research of, of course, what I know of is going to be a monstrous thing, and I was like, I'm not getting into this. Um, it might be a country. Is it on our list? I don't know. We'll okay. check it. We'll check on that after. I'll yeah. put it on my questions. Um, so, so it's a place. I think it's sort of British. Yeah, it's a it's a British overseas territory, and whether that makes it a country, I'm not addressing. Okay, right I do now. think there's a number of British overseas territories that are not on our list. That's fair. So, maybe we will address this when we talk about England, assuming we have yeah, time. Yeah, or maybe we can do a bonus episode on like all the British yeah. overseas territories. We're doing a lot of housekeeping. Let's get into this. <laughs> okay, okay. So that's Gibraltar. Don't worry about it for now. Uh, the capital city also is Madrid, which again, I feel like a lot of people know. Um, it's cool to look at on a map. It's The streets are kind of spiderweb. Okay. 
shaped like coming out from the center of the city which i think is interesting and kind of in defiance of this very western like grid american thing that certainly toronto is and new york and the the grid focus is certainly uh a thing that sprung out of cities that were built after the invention of cars totally (laughs) yes um and i i remember getting very very lost in london england once for this exact reason yes i was like oh i can just pop down that way it's a grid it's not a grid (laughs) we'll be eaten yeah there's alleys and staircases and shit in European cities in a way that's not familiar. Suddenly I'm just like standing on this cobblestone street in between like a pub and a grocer and like an internet cafe and I'm like, what the... (laughs) How'd I get here and how do I get home? So um, there's some very interesting early history that comes out of Spain. So I wanted to spend some time talking about this because often it's like, I don't know, they found an axe. We don't really know anything. Yeah. Um, So there's evidence of human occupation in what is currently Spain, um, going back to the Neanderthals, Homo sapiens, and maybe even earlier, like up to about a million years ago. Yeah. So it's been inhabited for a long, long time. Um, We know this mostly because of a really rich archaeological site called Atapuerca, which is located in the north of the Iberian Peninsula. Um, It's especially useful because human occupation on that, like, at um, Atapuerca was continuous. So we have fossils and artifacts that show, like, ongoing changes and kind of layers and layers of human development. Oh, that's awesome. Which is very cool. There's some pictures that you can look up. It, it's neat. I think they're still doing work there. It was... Um, it sounds like there would be a whole lot to discover. And especially so as technology advances, you can learn more about the stuff that you've already found. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, so pretty much all of the sites there are in caves, which means that also that they are undisturbed and very well preserved. Um, this is true in like several locations in modern day Spain and also in France. We talk about the Lascaux Caves a lot. Yes. Um, that's one of these sort of really well preserved, really important like archaeological locations. Um when we're talking about the number of artifacts that have come out of Atapuerca, we're talking about like hundreds of tools and weapons and bones and like all kinds of stuff, which right. is so cool. And there's like definitely a part of me that's like, yeah, I should have been an archaeologist. Although, I think I think there's a part of everyone. Yeah. That, and then that goes there once in a while. Because I've certainly it, had that feeling a couple times doing this podcast. For sure. I think, though, there is like a certain amount of it, though, that's just like kneeling in the dust and not finding anything for oh, like absolutely. most when of you, your career. When you think about know. it for more than a minute, it, yeah. <laughs> it truly sounds miserable. But to be that person that makes that discovery, like, holy so shit. So cool. Oh my God, that would be, it would be worth all the kneeling in the dust, but. Totally, but you have to get there. Yeah. Um, And it's just, it would be so cool to like find that new dinosaur or that tool that like uncovers a whole thing that we didn't even know about oh yeah little little five-year-old Aaron could spell paleontologist and was very proud (laughs) of this fact yeah didn't you know all the latin names for the dinosaurs also i was i was a big dinosaur nerd 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 okay so atapuerca was named a world heritage site in the year 2000 which i thought was cool also um the Cantabrian Mountains, hopefully I'm saying that right, um, and other surrounding mountains found in other parts of Spain and France um, house caves, like I was saying with the Lascaux Caves, that were painted um, and mostly depict actually cold weather animals like bison and mammoths, etc., etc., but not actually a lot of people. There was a cool thing I read about, which is that a lot of the depictions were done on like smaller rocks and were kind of portable, which okay. I find like fascinating the fact that someone was like hey we could write this down here and then we could bring it with us to the next place that's cool i love that i love the idea of pocket cave art that seems like (laughs) like a trend in the making um so then around 6,000 before the common era people start kind of raising livestock and doing agriculture as they were other places in the world also however it seems that this was like there was a bit of a lag Probably, they think, because the mountains and the caves were very convenient for hunting. So there was less of, like, an, a drive to, like, we have to settle down and we have to start Yes, I think that building was permanent locations. reasonably common within prehistoric societies is, is caves as sort of a base for hunting. Totally. And it makes so much sense, too. Like, you just hide here until the thing walks by and then you well, exactly. stab it and, and you're good. You know, you can find more caves and... and 
have like expeditions going out and searching places. It's it's a useful thing. Totally. It makes a lot of logical sense. Um so then around 3200 BCE, um, communities get a little bit bigger and a little bit better organized and metalworking starts to develop. There is one particular impressive settlement at Los Milares, which um, has reinforced walls, aeroslits and guard stations, which is quite impressive um, when you think about it for the time that they're yeah, thinking ahead to this kind 3, of defense. 3200 BC, you yeah. said? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's old and smart people live there. Um we then see like small houses kind of inside the walls, as well as a cemetery and a workshop that was kind of like the central, the workshop that is, was like the central kind of hub of this place. Um, we then sort of move into the Bronze Age after 2000 BCE, where many settlements sort of moved location very slightly. Sometimes I read just by like a couple hundred meters, okay. kind of to just be in a little bit of a better location. A lot of them went on top of hills to give, obviously, a better look at the surrounding area. And at this time, there's also evidence of like emerging class structure where sort of rich people have jewelry and live in the nice part of town. Basically, like the very the prehistoric version of what we do today anyways. Right. (laughs) And so now we begin like a long string of invasions and different groups and societies that are going to come to what is modern day Spain and all kind of drop their little influence on the area. Um, We're going to start with the Phoenicians. So Spain is honestly doing pretty great by the time the Phoenicians show up around 800 BCE. Um, yeah, they've had quite a bit of time to to build on those advancements they've made. Yeah, they're doing they're doing great. They're organized. They're well defended. It's it's going good. Um, Phoenicia, for context, because I didn't fully know this, um, is located in what is modern day Lebanon and parts of Syria and Israel. Um, there is some argument that they arrived earlier than 800 BCE, but that's what we have evidence for. So that's what we're going to go with. Um, this establishes a really rich like trade agreement and structure in the area, including um, things like Greek pottery, wine, jewelry, dyes. There's like all kinds of stuff that starts coming into the area. Yeah, I thought the Phoenicians were based a little further west than that, actually. Yeah, that was what I read anyways. We'll see, I guess, when we get there. Yeah. Um, if I'm colossally wrong, which I might be. <laughs> um, this whole trade thing goes like great, just swimming right along um, until about 573 BCE when Tyre, which is then and now a modern day, or sorry, a city in modern day Lebanon, and I read has actually been inhabited pretty much continuously, like since the beginning of human existence yes, which is it, pretty cool it comes up in in a number of old stories i think yeah i'm thinking about like pericles prince of tyre yeah right? exactly yeah anyway i never read that but it exists <laughs> um, and so tyre falls to the the babylonians and phoenician settlements in spain don't like disappear all of a sudden completely but they suffer a little bit like by extension because their big city has just fallen okay to the babylonians um there's still a really healthy trade situation set up with um, Carthage, which is modern-day Tunisia, and the right, surrounding... Right, I thought Carthage was part of the whole Phoenician... Like, I thought Carthage was the center of the Phoenician civilization. So Carthage was actually founded by Phoenicia and then became their own thing after the fact. We will okay. address this. So, So Phoenicia was actually centered more out of... Like the Lebanon-Israel sort of area. I think so, at least at the time that this is happening. Okay. Maybe some other stuff happened beforehand. Fair enough. I don't, yeah, no, I'm I just totally wrong then. That's on me. No, it's okay. It's connected and confusing, <laughs> as these things always are. Um, so Carthage is defeated in the First Punic War in 228 BCE, which is fought between Rome and Carthage. Yes. Um, after this, Carthage launches an invasion of southern Spain, which we'll see a lot of the invasions happen in the south. It makes a lot of sense because you have that little like strait of, of Gibraltar there. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a it's great... It's such an amazing spot to invade from Africa. Yes, if yeah. you have boats, do it that way. <laughs> there's, there's no reason to be like going all the way around the land part. That's interesting because I learned about the Punic Wars like even in high school history yeah. class. Like those are very well known, but I, I wasn't aware of then the subsequent Phoenician invasion of Spain. Yeah, I don't think that gets the Carthaginian invasion of Spain. Carthaginian invasion. <laughs> See, I'm doing it again. Um, so, right. So Carthage launches their invasion um, led by 
a dude by the name of Hamilcar Barca, who is Hannibal's dad. Oh, and hell you yeah. may remember Hannibal also from your high school history classes, as I do. He's going to be important in a minute. Um, cool. I, I kind of assumed Hannibal was one of those come from nowhere, built his legacy sort of guys. And I, I had no idea his dad also had like history about him. That's really interesting. He does. He does. I thought that was cool, too. Um I don't know why I had that notion about Hannibal. Because we don't talk about Hamilton. Ham, yeah, Hannibal, Hamilton. Ham, <laughs> I was listening to um, Totalis Ryan earlier. Oh, is yeah. why my brain is doing this. Um, Alexander Hannibal. <laughs> <laughs> we don't talk about Hannibal's family. Yeah, we just talk about him and the elephants and the Alps and that thing. Yeah, that he exactly. Did, right. Yeah. Um, so they found a new capital um, called Cartago Nova. Pretty clearly new Carthage. Um, that same year and start to like continue their expansion into Spain. So basically they get booted a little bit by the Romans and they're like, fine, we'll go found a thing somewhere else. And they feel like Southern Spain is the place to do that. Um, so then Hamilcar dies and Hannibal takes over, as we know, um, continuing the expansion into Spain and reaching as far as the Ebro River, which is actually not far from like the modern day border that Spain shares with France. So they push pretty far north. Okay, yeah. Um, quite efficiently. And Because am I correct in thinking yeah. that Spain's borders and like their border with France is about where it looks like it would be yes. on a map? Okay, Yes, cool. if you would instinctively draw a line about there. Cool. Um, Portugal is the weird one. We're going to talk yes. about that. Yeah, because Portugal is the other country on the Iberian Peninsula. Yes, right. it's, it's on the western side that's what i thought of yeah the peninsula and like spain by extension yeah um, yeah so uh what happens next right so there's the ebro river um which is the point where it was like decided in the first punic war that was like as far as carthage was allowed to go rome i guess drew that line on the river and was like that's it you can have up until here of course <laughs> because no one ever goes along with this stuff properly. Um, the Carthaginians are like, mm, but we could go further. And then they have an argument, but with like with Rome and Carthage again over an area called the Seguntum, which is a Roman settlement in Eastern Spain. Okay. This leads to the second Punic war, which you may have also heard about um, in which Carthage ultimately loses, um, despite also having like lots of success in their conquest of Italy. It's all over the place. They're like making gains one place and like losing it other places. I mean, it's not unheard of. If you're pouring all your resources into one front, the other front is going to suffer. This is true. Additionally, they're fighting Rome, which is like the powerhouse of the and day. And that's where you're going to need um, to pour all your resources. Yeah, don't fight Rome <laughs> is, I think, what we learn here. Um, so there's also... In Spain, this is a lot of like overlapping information, mm -hmm. but anyway, there's also a Celtic population, um, which takes like a different route sort of in inland Spain. Um, they sort of preserve a fairly isolated way of life until about 700 BCE. The languages are Indo-European, including Celtic and Lusitanian is not honestly something I know that much about. We're just going to plow ahead yeah. here. Um, we can't dive into every. No, we hole. can't. It cannot be done. <laughs> <laughs> so there are a lot of like little tribes and also a heavy, what's called like, and we'll talk about it as being like Iberian influence. So Iberian being like sort of native to the peninsula. Right. Um, this will come up later as more and more like external places like pile on to the Iberian peninsula. Um, and the economy is primarily like animal herding and agriculture. And they stick around until Roman conquest, which we'll get to down the way a little bit, um, where the, the sort of look and feel of the culture becomes much more Roman and Mediterranean. Right. Um, and we see that influence. The thing I noticed here is that the, the people living on the Iberian Peninsula, wherever they came from, are fairly receptive to other cultures. They look at the Greeks and the Romans and even the Phoenicians. And they're like, oh, that's kind of okay. We could do something like that. 
And I find that intriguing because sometimes there's a lot of pushback. Yes. When you get. This is how we've always done it. And yeah. fuck you if you want to make us do it another yeah, way. Exactly. Yeah. But either like just the influence was really strong or people have a little bit of a different attitude. I don't know. Um, but there seems to be some space to say, okay, we can try it like that. Cool. Um, we're going to talk also now about the Greeks who sort of made a stab at establishing themselves on the Iberian Peninsula and then didn't do, I think, as well as they'd hoped. Um, they try some stuff. They have only two small settlements around 575 BCE. But they are, as I said, like influential. They, there is like raging trade in Greek stuff sort of via the Phoenicians. We talked about like the pottery and perfume and olive oil and a lot of those like luxury items sure um come in through the greeks and they do a, a lot of trade but not a lot of sort of land conquering per se um so we see also as i was saying the emergence of the iberian kind of identity and people um this is not like only people from Spain and Portugal, but like the peninsula in general. My understanding is that there are also people in France who sort of identify as Iberian to some extent. Um, and these are people who very readily adopted Phoenician and Greek culture until the Romans take over and then kind of like sweep the whole thing right. as they do. Um, but you can still see evidence in the... Um, the remaining like ruins and architecture of definite like Greek and Roman styles there. But um, the Romans too, they were all about assimilation. Like, they loved it. Yeah. They loved it. They showed up somewhere. They were like, no, you will do everything like we do it because the Romans do it best. And you can argue that point as much as you would like. Um, we see also three sort of writing systems that develop, which all kind of point towards different influences. So there's one that's kind of, Phoenician style, although not exactly, one that's kind of Greek style, but not exactly, and one sort of Iberian style. Um, all of these located primarily in the south, where, as I said, people are really like onboarding onto the peninsula. Right. I imagine, though, the Iberian style is exactly by definition. Yes, it, it <laughs> certainly is. I think it's also kind of unreadable sure. now. Okay. Um, not so not resembling anything like modern Spanish then. No, no, I don't think so. Um, that's got too many Latin too much Latin influences. Yeah. yeah, it's way too similar to French and sort of English. Um, although someone told me once English is more Greek. It probably than... has like more Greek roots than the others. Yeah, but yeah, it's. Language is so weird and cool. Um, <laughs> linguistics, another thing I could have done, maybe. No, not for me. I don't think that's an every little kid dreams about no, being a linguist. No, that's true. But every little kid does take that class in their undergraduate degree. Um, okay, so Rome. Um, Your childhood was weird. I don't Taking know. Taking undergraduate classes? No, obviously not. Just... <laughs> I was such a baby when I was taking undergraduate classes and I thought linguistics would be fun. And then that exam was so easy. They knew people were just taking it for anyway. That's we, we've diverged. Um, so Rome, you may remember Rome um, from the previously fought Punic Wars um, between, as I said, Rome and Carthage. And only that. Yes. <laughs> and only that. Um, they get caught by Hannibal kind of playing defense when Hannibal shows up in Italy, which is not a thing they do very much. Um, the Romans did a pretty good job thrashing Carthage until about 211 BC, um, when they were, as we noted, kind of pushed back to the, the Ebro River. There is pushback on the Roman invasion from the... Is it Celts or Celts? Celts. Celts, that's what I thought. Okay. But it's spelled weird. Anyway, from the Celts, um, the Lusitanians and Iberians. But it doesn't seem that they were, like, coordinating between each other. They were just all fighting the Romans, like, separately right. towards the same cause. I don't think communication was great. Um, I'm not getting into the nitty-gritty of this because the Roman occupation of Spain could be a podcast by itself. Right. As many of these things 
good. Um, but essentially, it takes Rome 200 years to conquer Spain, and they do it by about 19 BCE, when everyone is finally like kind of defeated and smushed, <laughs> according to the Roman style. This is where we and see... And Rome doesn't have that much juice left in it at no, this point in no, time. No, we're going to see that. We're going to see that. It takes them a long time to get it done, but they do. They do not give up. Um, this is where we also see that heavy influence, as I said, on the architecture. There are right. Spanish ruins that look like Roman ruins because of the, the heavy presence in the area. Yeah, well, that's the case. So many places. So many places. Around Italy, yeah. Yeah. Um, so Rome also does a thing where they establish little cities and settlements by letting their war veterans and sort of local wives and children live there, which I thought was kind of an, a smart angle. Mm-hmm. Like, you fought all that stuff. You got here. Just stay. <laughs> and, like, hold the fort for us. And a lot of them do. Because um, it's also it's a long walk back to Rome, even yeah. if all the roads do lead there. And you're going to need to put an occupation down at some point anyways. Yes. Why not just leave the one that's already there yes um and so then at this point also the kind of conquered locals start to really emulate the romans there's a lot of ready adoption of what they bring culturally um there's also some interesting crossover where some spanish people actually go to rome to participate in politics and kind of intellectual life in a way that i think not everybody liked maybe (laughs) on the Roman side of things, but they were fairly influential, um, important people surrounding the emperors and participating in the Senate, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, Which is also kind of a fun niche and you could probably make a podcast about that too. And then soon it's going to be the barbarians, um, which the, the Roman empire at the time is also busy dealing with a civil war. So they pull troops from Spain and then there's not a ton of resistance to the oncoming Germanic tribes okay, um, who are about to sweep through with resounding success. So as we are all taught in high school history, the Huns start pushing Germanic tribes around and then that forces them to like move west and then into... Um, Roman and other territories in and around 500 CE. Spain is particularly, excuse me, particularly targeted by the Visigoths. Do you think I'm saying that right? I believe it's Visigoths. Visigoths. All right. Um, And a little bit later, the Vandals, Alans, and Suebi, who like honestly make a real mess of things. This seems to be kind of... Rome's fault in a way because they're not good at negotiating with the Visigoths. There's a lot of like they want something and Rome's like absolutely not. So then they just trash the area instead of doing a negotiation that might kill less people. But I guess that's not high on the priority list. There's also a lot of infighting among the Germanic tribes, which is pretty messy. And then the Byzantines at this moment take advantage of all the chaos to then move on in and take some parts of southern and eastern Spain. Although I think they don't hold on to that for very for very long. Right, they, that's pretty far separated from the Byzantine it Empire. It is, but they take a stab anyway. <laughs> um, it's extremely challenging now to try to integrate the current and very like Roman Spanish population to the newly arrived Visigoths. They don't want to. They don't want to hear about it. Right. We already did this. The Western Roman Empire has more or less fallen at this point in time. Yes. Yes, it has. Um, there is. Sorry, one sec. Right. The integration is sort of taken up by a Visigoth king by the name of Leo Vigild. Vigild? Yes. Um <laughs> who takes it upon himself to sort of put down the Suebi, who we mentioned before, um, and the Basques, and did a more like Roman type of ruling where he saw that what they were bringing wasn't going to work for any of the people and tried to do it a little bit differently to sort of be more palatable to everybody. Um, He also, though, made the mistake of trying to get everyone who were like primarily Roman Catholic at this point to convert to his version of um, Arian Christianity, which I had not ever heard of. But anyway, I know there's a lot of subsets. Um, Absolutely. And I can't get into all of those either. Um, and I imagine the word Aryan had not yet taken on its no, 
its connotation of general white supremacy. It's also spelled differently. Um, it's A R I A N. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. So it's different. Clearly, though, like adjacent. Right. I would say. I don't think that's going to surprise anybody much. Um, and surprisingly, too, he like wants everybody to convert, but he doesn't make a war out of it. He doesn't go around like killing everybody who won't convert to Aryan Christianity. Right. Just sending missionaries and whatnot. Yeah. He's just like trying to bring people over, which actually I think for the time is quite admirable because <laughs> this is a time when it's very easy to kill people who don't want to do the same religion as you. And we will see it coming up shortly. I was going to say, we're, we're going to see holy wars oh, on Spanish soil. We're going to get there. Okay. We're going to get there. But um, uh, Leo's not doing it. It's not right. for him. Okay. <laughs> so, unfortunately, nobody is interested in Aryan Christianity. Um, and his son, even Hermengild, tries to do a rebellion because he's Roman Catholic, too. And he's like, no way, Dad. We're not doing this. Um, then Leo's other son... Ricard actually takes the, th the throne after his father's death. Yeah, because who wants to follow a rebellion led by a guy named Herman? It's, um, Herman Guild. Oh, Herman Guild. Herman Guild. Okay. But yeah, fair enough. No one wants to do that. Um, so, what's his name? Ricard is also a Catholic, um, and he does much better on the unified religion thing because everybody's already Catholic, anyways. So they're very happy to join up underneath him uh, on this, like, unified religion thing. And that works out pretty good for everyone. Um, a little bit later, under another king, right, this is where the Byzantines get ousted, and the Visigoths at this point have, like, full control of the Iberian Peninsula. So they're doing pretty good for now. There is some political turmoil because the Visigoths really like to kill their kings, everybody dies. It's like this guy was king and then he was killed and then this guy was king and then he was killed. <laughs> Just sort of on and on, which makes it hard to get anything done. So the Catholic Church is like, we got to do something about this. And they I always to... feel bad when, when you're doing your research and it's like, the council decided to put John on the throne. Three days later, the people tore John limb from limb yeah. in the city square. And it's yeah. like, I'm sorry, John. Yes. Like, you didn't <laughs> but, necessarily ask for this. But also sometimes, too, I get like all hyped up thinking someone's going to be really important and then they just die immediately. And yeah. it's like, oh, all right, going to just <laughs> simplify that sentence a little bit because it doesn't really lead anywhere. I don't need to figure out how to pronounce this name. Yeah. This person's dying in three days. Exactly. Exactly. So you have to kind of pick and choose a little bit. Um, so the Catholic Church is like, we can't keep doing it like this. And they try to make more of like an official coronation ceremony to signify to the people that this person is your king now and you cannot just kill them. This, I don't think like works super well. <laughs> I didn't really see anything like either supporting or refuting so they try this thing. Right. At any rate, the 600s are a pretty good time for like culture and overall personal well-being. Um, then at the end of the century, at the end of the 7th century, sorry, we're going to talk about um, a guy named King Wamba, who is yeah. currently in power. Um, he tries to do some military reforms and people don't love that. I'm unclear exactly why. So he decides, because things aren't looking so good for him, to just blame everything on the Jewish population. And... Oh, joy. Here we go. Oh, no. Um, so he says that all of the Jewish people have to convert to Christianity or they will be forced into slavery, which is not a great set of options. Um, obviously, this is not okay, and it's, it's quite messy. The next king because I think King Wamba gets killed. The next king... <laughs> um, I had high hopes for Wamba. He disappointed me. This guy's got a good name, too. His name is Witiza, and he also has the throne for a bit, but can't sort of hold on to it. His son, Roderick, who has easily the most pronounceable name we have encountered so far, um, takes over, and, and the rest of his family, though, doesn't like that. So they do a thing where they, like summon quote unquote some of the north african muslims to like come help out 
and so then the the Muslim governor of Tangier just like sweeps right through Spain. Yep. There's no Visigoth leader at this point, so everyone's like, what the fuck are we doing? And they just like wipe the completely through. Hey, you invited us. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> like we're asses to be here. <laughs> and they do they do a very efficient job. Um eventually there is a small Christian uprising in the sort of northern mountains in Spain. And these guys take it upon themselves to, like, take back the country from the current Muslim powers, like, slowly but steadily, lasting through the 13th century. So it's it's a slow chipping away at um, getting your religion back. <laughs> um, th- this is where the history starts to get really complex and really hairy. And this period could also honestly be a podcast by itself very easily, but I'm going to do my best here. Like the, the fact of the matter is that any one country's history could be a many episodes podcast all to itself. But this one easier than others. (laughs) I think there is so much and so much density like you could do a thing, you could do like a totalis rankium just about Spanish kings and nobles easily um, without even trying. Um, so we're going to now establish the the Castilla and Aragon families who are two very important big names in the area well known to crusader kings players yes i'm sure and also who will be important for like a long time to come they they really stick around i don't know what it's like in sort of the modern day for them but anyways um they pitch in and kind of help with this christian takeover thing which gets called um the reconquest they try to unify the peninsula again, but they're struggling to get Portugal to join. And as we now know, given our current borders, they don't succeed. Portugal's like, no, we're not going to be over here. We're doing our own thing. By ourselves. Um, Obviously, this doesn't happen all at once. There are many, like, long wars between Christian and Islamic people and a lot of kings and, like, political succession. I'm actually actually Um, really surprised at how little we've mentioned Portugal over the course of this episode so far. Yeah, yeah. Considering they're the one other country sharing this this peninsula with Spain. It seems, at least up until the point that I have currently researched, there was not that much tension there. Yeah. Um, I think it was pretty, like, we're just going to be over here and you guys can be over there. However, we may research Portugal and find this to be a total lie. So sort of amazingly at this particular moment, um, Jews and Muslims who were living in Spain are kind of allowed for a minute to like practice their religions, but they have to pay for it, which I think is hilarious. There's like a little extra tax if you want to not be a Christian right now. Um, at the outcome, but still like primarily we're talking about a, a Christian country. Um, at the outcome of this reconquest or reconquista, um, most people now are living in cities and there's a definite expansion in urban areas. So then there's these two people. It's a little bit like, it's not exactly Romeo and Juliet, but anyway, there's Ferdinand and Isabella, who you've probably heard of as yes. they are quite important there's also like several ferdinands subsequently yeah i know uh the other week with argentina we were talking about ferdinand the seventh so yeah i'm not honestly i don't get into it that much with all the different ferdinands ferdinand the seventh is like napoleon times so that's gonna be next time (laughs) yeah we've got some some ferdinands to go we do we do so ferdinand and isabella get married in 1469 and this is the point of this is to fuse the families of castile and aragon um Although some people, it seems, argued that it would make more sense for them to intermarry like Portugal and Castile because they are closer geographically and culturally. But that's not what happens. 
um, essentially the the Aragon Portugal family is also maybe not interested. If yeah, they I, seem to just be doing their own thing, it's true. It's true. They might have still like enjoyed the alliance, yeah, um, even as a separate sort of nation. But anyways, didn't happen, so we'll never know. Uh, someone can write that fun piece of fan fiction. Um, so basically, like the Aragon family needs help fighting the French, and that's part of what influences this decision. Um, they they want the Castile family to come and help them out. Uh, so Ferdinand and Isabella do a thing where they sort of joint rule both kingdoms and they do it in what I think is a very smart way and that they don't try to like fuse the cultures or shake it up or anything or like get anyone to change their entire way of living. They're just like, it's cool. You stay there. <laughs> we'll stay here and we'll rule you together, which I think, as I said, was smart because otherwise you get like awkward civil wars and stuff. Yeah. Um, a problem they were having, though, is that a lot of the nobles in Castile had a lot of power and were essentially like little kings themselves. The main monarch almost didn't matter the way that the society was structured, right, that kind really of feudal thing. power. Yeah, they had so much power and so much influence over their little sphere that they were like, fuck you, do whatever you want. I'm fine over here with my peasants and my, <laughs> my nice house and it's going to be okay. But Ferdinand actually make some moves to kind of trim down the power a little bit and make them like remove them a little bit from like Royal administration so that the Royals can make more decisions mm -hmm. and not be so influenced by the like important noble families. Onwards we go to the Spanish inquisition. Joy. Oh, it's, it's fun. It's more of like the church doing stupid stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great summary of the Spanish I, Inquisition. Let's move on. <laughs> we can. We can. We'll be skipping a lot. But anyway, um, I watched once a movie and I wanted to mention this here because I've never, I don't think, like talked to anybody else who had seen this called, I think, Goya's Ghost. And it was about the painter, Goya. Sure. Um, and but also not about him at all. It took place during the Spanish Inquisition. You know, those like weird biopics where they're yep. like. They tried to do something super artsy. Yeah. 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 I remember they execute a guy like really brutally at the end. Is I also, it any good or? It was hard to follow okay. a little bit. I thought they made like some good points, but it was maybe a little bit like, don't torture people. <laughs> like, cool. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I figured that much out by myself. Thanks. I don't know. I remember watching this movie. Um, I And like, it's not like I wasn't. I wasn't old enough to be seeing it, but I felt kind of on the edge of not being old enough to see it. Yeah. I was like, probably if my mom saw this, she might not love it. Some of the gross stuff that's happening here. Anyway, I think they also had a bit of that, like, we're an artsy film. There needs to be nudity. And yeah. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> if you've seen the movie, tweet us. I'd like to hear what some other people think, because, like, I feel I have a, a skewed interpretation. Um... So Spain at this point in kind of medieval history is doing something unusual in that there's really no other country in Europe that has the same diversity of ethnicity, eth excuse me, ethnicities and religions. Yeah. They're sort of trying to do multiculturalism kind of before other people are doing that. And obviously they don't know how. Um, in the 14th century, the relationship between Jewish people in the country and monarchs is really failing. A lot of people are blaming the Jews for the devastation that was caused by the plague around this time. And there's there are a lot of sort of anti-Semitic riots through the mid to late 1300s. Okay. Um, some Jews convert, which was like a decent number of them because the violence was quite something. Yeah. Um, but then they can't even get away from it like that because then they get a bad reputation for being, quote, new Christians. And that's not good enough. Yep even though you did literally the only thing you could do besides getting yourself killed. So, and a lot of them also are doing quite well financially and they hold important positions in government. They're friendly with the nobles and nobody else likes this because of course they don't. Right. Um, then Pope Sixtus IV um, sets up the Inquisition where he gives basically a lot of power to monarchs and only too late is like, whoops, Maybe I shouldn't have <laughs> given the monarchs all that power. 
Um, people in the country at this time are very scared, which like obviously is the point. There's a lot of hunting down and torture and trying to figure out who's a secret Jew. Anyway, um, this has probably been somewhat sensationalized by modern media, but is still extremely racist right. and very bad overall. Um, some 160,000 Jews who refused to be baptized are forced to leave in 1492, um, which was very, very Sorry, stupid. Sorry, how many? 160,000. Jesus Christ. That's a lot of people. Um, and it's very stupid because this is a large portion of the working population. Yeah. And now they're just gone. <laughs> but they didn't think of this beforehand. <laughs> so this leads to something that I see kind of as a parallel with like Harry Potter and the pure blood <laughs> obsession where Spanish people just like on the daily are really obsessed with people's heritage and whether they have, you know, ancestors who were new Christians and like who converted and who was Jewish before. Yeah. And like, we can't hang out with those people. It's absurd. It's such a waste of time. But anyway, it's what they were doing. Um, the Inquisition kind of like runs out of steam sort of mid-1500s, but I don't know if it's, at least I didn't see anything that it was like completely abolished yet. Um, one good thing that comes out of all of this, which we have to see the silver lining someplace, is that people are kind of bored of this witch hunt thing, and so they don't waste a lot of energy hunting, you know, witches when other places are doing that in the medieval times. Um, quite enthusiastically in some places. There's that bit from, it, it's the Monty Python and the Holy Grail, right? Yeah. With the witch and the duck. Amazing. She turned me into a newt. Yeah. Yeah. But also don't kill people for no reason. Okay. Um, the Muslim population kind of rules independently for a while until they are also given the choice between conversion and expulsion. There's a rebellion and a war, and eventually the Christian population comes out on top. Right. Um, so they're kind of like late additions to the Inquisition. It's like, oh, right, those guys. Probably we should go get them too. I don't know. It's ridiculous. So um, on to the, the fun topic of colonization. There's a lot of it. Yeah, um, a whole bunch of it. Spain at one point holds 35 colonies, including but not limited to, obviously, Mexico, parts of California, Florida, and New Mexico, the Philippines, Colombia, and like dozens of other places. Yep. Gen Argentina and Guatemala, we've already talked about. Yeah. Was, uh, was Guyana a Spanish colony? I believe so. I don't remember. There was such a long list, but I... I think so at I think some point. so because it's... There's also French Guyana, which is confusing. And True, obviously it was yeah. a French colony, so... Either way. Yeah, anyway. Um, there's there's lists if you want to look up <laughs> the 35 Spanish colonies. Well, we um, will get into them all over time. We will. We will. Generally speaking, though, the Portuguese kind of got there first. They were a little bit more on the colonization ball. They The Portuguese made an astounding number of discoveries. Yes. Yes, they did. They did. Um, we meet also at this point our friend Christopher Columbus, who was given a lot of money by Isabella to go exploring and yes. destroying things as uh, he was wont to do. And just like opening the door for everyone else to be like, ooh, let's go over there and kill some indigenous people. Um, Columbus lands in the West Indies in 1492 and kind of opens the route for the Spanish to conquer like enormous portions as we know of the Americas and some parts of East Asia. Um, there's a little conflict with Portugal over what exactly belongs to who. And this is settled with the treaty of Tordesillas in 1494. They sort of draw a line about what belongs to who, but the other European conquering nations don't see why this is relevant. And they just, this is a lot of war in South America. Um, <laughs> the, the Spanish and the Portuguese come to an agreement and everyone else is like, eh, <laughs> whatever. Um, it seems that the Spanish attitude towards colonization was heavily invested 
in education and conversion of indigenous people, which it seems they were kind of doing to like tell themselves it was a good thing. Right. That it was for everybody's benefit that we show up and give them Christian schools. And I mean, okay, but also no, um, there's also, I think they're trying to balance out a little bit, all of these like conquistadoras who are really after gold and, they're trying to balance this out. It's like, we're not only greedy. We also want to educate you. It's ridiculous. Anyway. We're also um, condescending. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like patting everybody on the head and giving them a gold star on their homework while we like dig up the gold in the neighboring. Anyway, um, this does, though, do one thing, which is that it kind of opens the conversation about whether it is moral to invade people's land like this. And run them over. And also seems... Sounds like a short discussion. Well, <laughs> it should be. But savages, don't you know? Um, and it also, too, seemingly led to some later regret over the help that Spain provided in the human trafficking of African slaves. We're getting close to the end of this episode. All right. Okay. This is kind of our last, our last thing. I'm just shedding the world's smallest tear for the slavers who regretted it later. Oh, God almighty. We'll get into it. Yeah. Keep on moving. I don't. (laughs) It's like when we have conversations with like plantation owners who like had slaves, but they had less slaves than their neighbors. So they treated them nicer. So that's better. Oh, I hate this stuff. Okay. Anyway. So then due to a giant succession crisis the Habsburg family takes possession of Spain from 1516 to 1700 which is overall a pretty hairy time the 1600s is a lot of wars with the with excuse me Europe which I'm gonna gloss over a little bit in the interest of again not doing a whole other podcast about this stuff Um, some of this war stuff is with France who are quite jealous of the Habsburgs and their hold on this big like portion of Spain Um, The French put in place as king uh, a guy from Burgundy um, who becomes Philip V of Spain. Then England comes along, allied with Austria, and they boot Philip. Then there are what's called the War of Spanish Succession, which forces Spain to give up much of the other European territory they held, including Belgium, Luxembourg, Sicily, and Naples, among other areas. Um, and Spain kind of remains under French control. I will leave you here. Next time we will discuss Napoleon and the French Revolution and probably like some world wars. And also we'll listen to the anthem and eat some food. Great. It's going to be fun. I'm really excited. So there you go. A crash course on early Spanish history. Yeah, we'll get part two next week. And then in uh, two weeks, I'll be coming back. I did not look up how to pronounce it. Uh, I'll be coming back to talk about the Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic. I can't help you, but good job. Yeah, it'll be great. (laughs) Okay, see you next time.